we're just gonna kick right into this thing. Uh, Cole Worley, designer of Root, thank you so much for being here today. It's yeah. a pleasure. Thank you. The, the pleasure is all mine, Jake. I appreciate y'all having me. Kyle, what's the best way to introduce our listeners to Cole and exactly the prominent role he plays in this game that we love? Cole Worley, uh, lead designer of Leader Games and head designer for Root and all its subsequent expansions and addendums. Uh, <laughs> and also one half of micro-publisher Whirligig in the past has designed such elegant and excellent games as Pax Pamir, John Company, and now Oath as well. Cole Whirly, it's, it's such a pleasure to be speaking with you. Thank you very much. And I, I should say, too, that uh, even though I've got my, my fingerprints all over all the Root stuff, uh, I'm joined by many design collaborators, including Patrick, who's done a ton of design work in the Root universe. Yeah, Patrick Leader. Awesome. This is great. Uh, Cole, I got a question right off the bat. I've been dying to ask you this for a long time. A quote I've seen attributed to you is, uh, we're not trying to make fun games. We're trying to make good games, right? And I just have a question. If I have fun while playing Root, have you failed? Uh, yes, extremely. <laughs> In fact, I think, I think the interview's over now. No, I, I, you know, I, um, I, I have a funny, I have a funny relationship with with I think games and game criticism that has to do with with when I started really like writing and thinking about games, uh, and that was during a time when on Board Game Geek there was a lot of belly aching about like what good game criticism was and what like how we could even talk about games. And one of the things that comes out of that conversation is this notion that fun, which is which had been kind of like the apex of criticism the best thing a game could do is give a fun experience was the more the more critics kind of sat with that term the more uncomfortable it made them because it wasn't it could just mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people right and mm -hmm. i i found it a little bit of an unhelpful endpoint because games have always had this really big emotional range and usually when when players talk about fun they mean fun in in a way of like kind of like f excitement or joy sometimes they're talking about joy Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, if a roller coaster is fun, it might be terrifying. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and it, w w when you go and see like a really wonderful movie, uh, it might make you feel all kinds of ways and it might be something that you definitely want to keep thinking about or even re return to another date. I don't know if you necessarily describe it as fun. So that line for me is a reaction to uh, a kind of review culture that really prioritizes fun. And it just kind of shuts down the conversation around what games can be before it gets interesting. So I've never really liked the term. I find it something I can't really optimize for. It is something that I, I do think about it as I'm designing, but I think about it in kind of a different frame, which is engagement, right? Like how, mm -hmm. how compelling am I finding mm -hmm. this thing? I think I, I usually, I like, if I have to pick one loose signifier, I like compelling better because if there's something about a game that is intriguing me, uh, that's usually a good sign. And then yeah. usually I personally am having fun if I'm if I'm in that, you know. I like the comparison you make about joy because there's still a lot of fun to be had in bad news. <laughs> like I, oh, yeah. I find like Sam in particular is a player that when bad news happens, I see a smile on his face as he pulls his own face downward. <laughs> He's still having a great time in despair. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, I always think about uh, I used to play a lot of Age of Steam and uh, I remember my, my my wife would would come down and say, you guys just look so like upset and dour <laughs> and all of us are just like frowning at a board and like no we're having an absolute blast down here but just it's taking every little fiber of our being to concentrate on this game state yeah 
Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. We, I, I, do you experience that in Oath too, Sam? Like, or like, and Kyle too? Like, I feel like sometimes I get that where when we're playing, I'm just like, the situation is so dire, but this is a, this is a thrill. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, even with the die roll, if the chancellor wins, there's so many mm. things or the, the fact that it's pretty, you can take things from people. It's really hard to be like in an unlockable spot. Um, so there's always the threat of having everything you need to win just taken from you. <laughs> yeah, we're still pretty early in our oath journey yeah. as well. So we we don't really know what optimal play like is yet. Uh, and I, I find this to be one of the most fun like stages of learning a game is when everyone's just trying stuff and mm -hmm. yeah. just, you know, the reactions that that creates, the ripples that that sends through the game. We're just kind of riding along and... Uh, yeah, the, it, it feels like the political game is very sharp. It's very, <laughs> in Oath. It, it's very compelling, which is exactly what you were aiming for. And, right? and one thing that, that is that is specific to Oath is, uh, and I, this isn't specific to Oath, but it's something that I think really shows as players get more experienced with it, is the game will feel often very tactical for the first few games. And then as you start playing it more, you, you'll begin to hatch these like two or three turn plays. Or sometimes you'll get your initial card draw and you'll say, okay, I think I know how I'm going to win this game. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to take four turns for me to set this up. It depends on you doing something and then falling into my trap. And that to me is where Oath starts really becoming like the, the, this tense and wonderful thing when you have these, these multi-turn like huge plans. Um, and it, I think it still works on a, on a, in a tactical space and can still be a, a good time. But one, one of the, the real like surprises, and I actually I had somebody tell me this recently, they sent me a message saying, you know, they, they got Oath because they wanted very story first strategy game. They were really happy with this as a story first strategy game. And then they were surprised 10 games in to discover it was actually also a strategy game uh, <laughs> where you could play well and play badly. Uh, and I think that that always, that always warms my heart because when, you know, one of the things that we were concerned about in development is every, every match had to present like real challenges and that were narratively coherent, but also strategically interesting. And so uh, one of the funny things about the development of both was that we didn't, play a lot of chronicles i mean we, we did we did a lot of them but not we didn't play as many chronicles as we played random one-offs mm -hmm. because we had to make sure the integrity of the single match worked and as right. long as that worked everything else would would, would follow well, speaking of uh, game design, so in terms of like when you were doing Root, were there any faction ideas that were too weird or too asymmetrical or like <laughs> threw things off too much in the process? Well, Root Ru is funny because we had really, I had really thought it was just going to be a four faction game. Uh, like it was very much like designed to work with those four factions. Yeah. And we, we had in, in, in early cuts of the Woodland Alliance, they were much more like harebrained and they all of their actions were like stacked into the deck itself and that they interacted with all the cards in a totally different way. And it just didn't it just didn't work. And it, it didn't work for a lot of reasons that would become obvious as I got uh, a little more experienced in design. But there, there were much wilder cuts of pretty much every single faction. Uh, but we, I, again, I really thought I thought of the original concept for the for the design was was a four faction design and we had built it that way and then when the kickstarter kind of two things happened at once uh the first was that the kickstarter took off and did really really well and so we thought like okay like there's obviously an appetite for this thing and then second as we were tightening up the factions the design itself became like a little more modular and strong 
And so it became possible to start thinking about it as a, a system that you yeah. could plug a lot of different factions into. And once that opened up, so many ideas came flooding through. And, and again, uh, I think they're better understood less as discarded factions and more as discarded versions of factions. The first yeah. cut of the lizards was played like entirely on paths and they were all about trying to like close the paths of the woodland. Didn't work. <laughs> Didn't work for a lot of a lot of reasons. Um, the the early versions obstructionist of, lizards. Yeah, <laughs> early versions of the otters were a lot uh, had a lot more free for, form negotiations, and they might have been better suited to an old game like the Eon game Dune. Um, but but again, they just did they they didn't quite like work within the framework that Root provides, and so it's it's been an interesting process getting used to um, building and developing factions for Root because so much of the challenge is trying to get the faction to harmonize with like the spirit of the game on the one hand, and on the other hand, like the constraints of of the system. And, you know, I've played a lot, uh, or not a lot, I've played several fan factions, and I've certainly talked to a lot of people about their fan factions. And the main thing that I see is folks who, like, design a cool minigame and then they want to, like, bolt it into Root. And I'm like, no, you have to speak with the language that, like, Root is giving you. And then it will tie, it'll tie everything together much better. Love that. That's super helpful for designers, I'm sure. Is there, like, a thing within each faction that use like, a, each faction needs to at least do this within the bigger game so the, checkbox the, the one rule that i give that i give uh designers is that the whole game needs to feel different for the inclusion of your one faction so if you're playing a game with the otters everybody should feel the waves that are like rolling onto the shore and if you're playing a game with the wooden alliance everybody should know that like there are parts of the woods that are dangerous that you can't go into and it needs to ch- change the the geography political and and uh, and, and actual to reflect every faction's inclusion. And that is like really what has made the game so fun to work with, especially now that we've started to add so many factions in. And right. we, we had a game in the office somewhat recently where we just did, you know, we've been doing a lot of the advanced setup drafting and we, mm-hmm. we, we drafted out a game, put some hirelings on the board and it was like a wild matchup. It was like, there were no factions from the core box or even the river folk in play. Lots of the weirder hirelings. We played with the odd deck and, and one of the landmarks. It was just, it was sort of amazing because the, it was such an interesting texture. And there was, it was it, uh, there were a set of interactions at work that I had just never seen like, oh yeah, how does it work when you have the badgers and the moles in the same game? with these kind of constrictions and there's the, you know, the lost city is one of the new landmarks. Uh, and it, it just, it, it created all sorts of interesting situations that would never happen in a regular game of root. And so mm-hmm. I think, you know, as the system grows and m- m- matures, the thing that I'm like really trying to keep an eye at, I an eye towards is how do you preserve like the central character of the game while still making the system as robust and as, um, multifarious is like any game system out there. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds easy. Great. Yeah, just, that's <laughs> the easy thing to so, do, right? It took so much work to finish Root Marauder. Yeah. <laughs> it was that, crazy. Yeah. That uh, was our next question is like, that was a huge success on Kickstarter, obviously. So like, was that one a more less straightforward because you already have established double the amount of factions than you already had anticipated when you first designed the game? Well, there are two things happening at the same time. On the one hand, we're all getting better at developing root content on on the other hand the 
existing system weighs heavily on everything that comes after because it's it's just a it's just an exponential function. I mean, you have to yeah. test everything with everything else, mm-hmm. and uh, the the development of the Marauder content was uh, directed mostly by Nick Brockman, uh, assisted greatly by Josh Yearsley. And so I got to do, you know, a lot of the initial design and then I got to play test with them and help them when, when they ran into a weird development problem, I would say like, okay, yeah, call me into that meeting. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll help, you know, brainstorm with you guys. Uh, and, and Nick had done a lot of development work on the underworld expansion. So he's been, he's been kind of like had his head in root space for a long time. And despite like the talent of the team and the resources we directed at it, this was by far the hardest development that we've ever done. And a lot of our processes, um, you know, we have one thing that I always try to underline when I talk about how Root was developed is, you know, Root was built largely by a small group of playtesters and then an in-office staff. Uh, I I would imagine I think there were mostly like 20 primary actors on that. Uh, Underworld had a lot more, maybe twice or three times that. And uh, Marauder has had like five times that. And, and this scaling up of our, of our playtesting bandwidth has allowed us to uh, finish these games in a somewhat timely fashion and not have them take six years or something to develop. Right. Uh, but it's just a, it's a huge amount of work. Yeah. I mean, I imagine in that whole process, there's got to be some things that, you know, are left on the cutting room floor. I remember at one point the idea that the Badgers might have been turtles. Is there yeah. anything from Marauders that was like cut? that hurts your heart that you had to leave behind? Uh, there were so many, like the Badgers built roads at one point. It was really cool. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I loved that. Uh, it just, it just didn't work. Um, the, the hireling process is the higher, the development of the hirelings was really interesting because it, at various times they were very complicated and really made the two player game like super chewy. Uh, and in a way that I loved, but in a way that did not make sense from like a product or design standpoint. Um, yeah. And where the hirelings ended up, I love where they ended up because I think they, they, they do a lot of good work for players who have played a lot of Root. And they do a lot of good work for a smaller play groups, especially people playing in, in pairs or with three, who don't really want Root Plus, but do want the experience of a four-player game of Root without having four people around the table. I think the hirelings do do great work there. Both of those things um, are kind of married to this other element of the hirelings, which is that uh, they're very easy to design because of because of how the system is built and because of the... Um, well, they're just... They're, I could go into specifics, but there are lots of reasons why the hirelings are... It's easier to design a hireling than, than a full faction. And I, I hope that we see a lot of like fan hireling designs because there's a lot of very good fan yeah. factions that are actually like almost done if understood as a hireling. Yes. Uh, and so I think it, like it gives something for folks to like work in and kind of play with that uh, is a lot less onerous than like build an entire faction because faction well, building yeah. is tough. I mean, I'll, well, the last thing I'll, I'll, I'll say is, you know, each of the. Um, each of the new factions basically took like about a month of design time and then two to three months of development time. It just takes a long time to get a faction like really right. Yeah. Well, right. And like the, when you design these things, they are big players in a closed economy of like generally four factions. Right. But the, the hirelings as like these minor factions, I'm so glad that they're brought in because they can tweak everything slightly. But that slightly can be very dramatic depending on how they're used. Mm-hmm. If you play a five-player game of Root with like all the options right now, it is it's getting a little intense. Like it's a little <laughs> bit like this is like Magic Realm or TI or something where there's just there's so much stuff happening on the table. And for certain groups who really want like the Root Plus experience, 
they're going to love that, that content. I think for, for a lot of groups, when they get, you know, the people who are playing root, you know, once, once a month or once every two months, they're going to be very, very happy with just the new factions, but the, the folks who really want to go deep there, there are just so many insane things that can happen now that can't possibly happen because of how the hirelings work. One thing that I think is so cool about your design process and uh, the process with leader games is that it's so kind of open, mm-hmm. uh, right? You make the, the print and plays available for um, people to kind of test on their own. And, uh, uh, you know, the, you're always kind of sharing this kind of ongoing design process with the public. What what about your design ethos has, like, driven you in that direction? Like, what, why is it important to show your work in that way? When I first started designing, uh, there just weren't a lot of designers who shared a lot of process. And even when they did share, they were very, like, cagey. Like, they would share only the unimportant stuff. Or they would share stuff, like, so after the fact that it was like hard to trace like what actually they were even talking about. I think like the worst offenders here, and I love both of these men dearly, but like Reiner Knitza talking about design or Martin Wallace talking about design, two like utterly brilliant designers, but who would often talk about it in a loose enough way and so far after the fact that like you didn't know what would happen. I remember reading the designer notes for Wallace's uh, game Automobile, a brilliant little business game. I don't know if it's played much now, but it's an excellent game. And he wrote that like, oh, I was working on this game. It had some trouble. And then I took it to a game con and we worked on it all weekend and then it was working. And I was like, what happened? <laughs> like what, what, what actually happened to like fix, yeah. fix that design? What's the meat of that? Yeah. And, 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 and it was interesting because like in Wargaming, uh, there's a lot of design documentation. And so I kind of come from that background where like I like, I like the footnotes. I like the, you know, the, the, the like the, the attempt to really fully uh, capture like a design. Like I love reading at the end of like a GMT manual, they'll have like sometimes little design histories and things. And so as I started designing, I, um, I, I wanted to talk about the process uh, because it seemed like I was doing due diligence. Like this is something I would want to have been done for me. Uh, the other reason I do it is because it, it helps. It, like I find that like writing is thinking and mm-hmm. so I will oftentimes start writing about a design before it's done, uh, long before it's done, and even posting about it because just like watching the conversation and being forced to sort of put things into words uh, is, is, is manifesting those things. Like, so the, the, yeah. root, the Root Designer Diaries, those were written while the game was being made, and, and you can see that. I mean, there's, there's, there's prototype photos and all the rest in there. Um, and in some places, you know, there were things that I was like quite sure about in the design that proved to be wrong. And then later <laughs> wrote another piece about like, hey, how these things are wrong. And I, I took it like probably to its most extreme when it came to documenting Oath, because Oath was so long and long and coming. I mean, I really started Oath in 2018. And I, I kept a design journal that I wrote in every day that I worked on Oath. It's like, I, I think it's like 60 or 70,000 words long. And then wow. the design essays are separate from that. They're their own, they're their own thing that I would look back at my design notes and be like, okay, I'm going to like type this out and kind of sort out these thoughts. And I, I tried to uh, really do my best to fully and honestly document my, the entire course of, of my thinking. And that meant you know, doing uncomfortable things sometimes. Like yeah. when, when we rebuilt the, the combat, I wrote like six or 7,000 words about why it changed. 
and and really going into the weeds like this is what, what was working this is what wasn't working this is why we made made this call and the, the 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 design process generally is so complicated that even that i'm always surprised when i look back at those documents and i'm like wow i left a lot out there was like a lot that we just <laughs> didn't have time to talk about well that happens in the creative process is you do have to like kill your darlings in a lot of ways right and i love that you talk about the writing of that because that process is super necessary and it's great to work it out either verbally or on paper because then you see how your thought process went and you can learn from that in the future too. To me though, it's, it, it's just incredible that it's like, we get to look at the whole process of these like great games. It reminds me of like a band, like you get to see like a behind the album, you know, a documentary on it. And then Cole, you let us play test these things for free. You know, we can just print and play, we can download them. So it's also like we get the music for free and you're just, you just know that we're gonna show up to the concert. You know, <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, I think that 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 comes into like, you know, it was so funny at lunch yesterday. We had a big conversation about intellectual property and mm -hmm. we weren't talking about it from, you know, from any other perspective. Like we weren't talking about it from a business perspective. We were just talking about it philosophically, like because, you know, I think uh, the people who work at the studio, some are older, some are younger. We have different levels of education, very different backgrounds. And so it, it was funny because some folks were talking about in, in our current like digital age. Uh, we kind of don't own anything, which right. is the, this weird paradox where it used yeah. to be like I thought I thought that the Internet was going to set us free. But actually, it means that like if Disney wants to stop airing a movie, the movie can cease to exist. <laughs> and and I, I was talking about how, like, actually, this is a weird inversion of like the history of intellectual property, which had the exact opposite perspective that like, no, actually, everything is owned by everybody. If you sing a song and I remember it then I can sing that song. You can't stop me. What crazy world would this be if you could stop me from singing the, the song that I just heard and I'm now doing my own rendition? Well, of course, that's exactly like videos get taken down on YouTube for, you know, for, sometimes yeah. for the same thing. Uh, and so we're just kind of talking about, about the, the, these, the, these different like paradoxes when it comes to IP. When it comes to my, my personal feelings about it, uh, basically all information just like wants to be free. I mean, I, I think, and I, so I, and I, I think that when it comes to the, the design process, I want to make as much available as best I can and then trust that for like, I, I think that that is like the ethical course. And I think that the time it takes to produce something at a professional grade is, is expensive enough that folks are going to still want to show up like when we throw the concert and get the game at the best price. Right. And I have watched people try to build sets of oath. And have spent so much money and time building like very, very, very good prototypes, uh, and having a very different, you know, Im impression for you know for how these things go. But I'll you know to, to give one more very short example, um, you know, I, b because Leader Games is a bigger company, um, there are reasons why we have to be a little more protective of our IP. But when it comes to like Whirly Gig, my little operation, we actually put everything into the Creative Commons explicitly. Everything we, we publish oh, cool. has a, has an explicit. It's in a Creative Commons non-commercial license. You can download all of the raw files. You can play with them. I don't care. The way that we like protect our business model is we do really like lavish productions that are that would be very hard to re recreate at home. And so we make these very beautiful games that I, we can then you know sell and it, it can keep it keep can keep my brother and I in business. Uh, but then also we know that like. If, if you don't if you don't have money for the games and you want to just produce a cheap copy yourself so you can play it with your friends like that's fine that you know that that, that doesn't bother me at all um, and that you know like that also lends itself to, uh, one reason why I like doing this is because 
I don't want there to be barriers to young designers trying to like see how games work. And it's the same reason that I think like libraries are a good thing, right? Like I, I want yeah. all information to be as accessible as, as possible. Are you going to write a book? I don't know. <laughs> they, they take so long. <laughs> yeah. But I, you, didn't but you, you write, write so much? 60,000 words <laughs> on how you added dice to the game? Like yeah, you could no, write well, a book. Well, but, okay. Maybe are you going to write a pamphlet? <laughs> I'm gonna, am I going to write a pamphlet? Maybe. Well, there's already, a, there's already a very good one about, about arguments called the Areopagitica by Milton. Um, people should read. Okay. Cole, has your kind of like, as you've designed more and more games, um, for the like young designer who's maybe working on their first or second kind of you know game, trying to get it like out into the world, um, what's your like number one piece of game design advice to for people just starting out? To make games, you have to you have to w walk through something called the iterative loop, which is you have to have an idea. And you have to figure out how to build it into something testable. And then you have to test it. And then you have to reflect upon it. And then you have to adjust your idea. And then you complete the iterative loop and you do it again. And you are going to have to run, any designer is going to have to run around this iterative loop thousands of times before a game is completed. So the best thing you can do if you're just starting out in design is figure out ways to move, to make that loop smaller and to run through it more efficiently or you'll, you'll, bur you'll burn yourself out. And so that's very high-minded, but what I mean in practice <laughs> is uh, learn a little bit of graphic design, mm -hmm. uh, find a community that will allow you to test in a frictionless environment, which means uh, you know playtesting with the same people, not relying on the kindness of strangers, but finding other playtesters and doing a playtest share and doing everything you can to get that iterative loop as tight as can be. Uh, because when you get deep in a project, its completion is going to depend on the uh, speed and the amount of friction that you encounter to move through that loop. So I usually tell young designers, um, it doesn't matter if you're not an artistic person, learn a little bit of graphic design. And, and, and that and that means yeah. like, you know, of course, YouTube tutorials, you know, mess around with Inkscape or, uh, you know, I, like, you know, it's like if you have access to the Adobe, the Adobe suite, wonderful, but there are free alternatives like Inkscape, Oh, or if you have a little bit of money, but not enough money for the Adobe suite, you can get like affinity. Uh, there are, there are good programs out there. Uh, and then I would also recommend, and th this is not recommended enough, but like actually go to a library and get a book on graphic design, like just an intro textbook, because it, if you were to read like four pages about visual hierarchy, it will save you like <laughs> mountains of work. Yeah. It's an undervalued thing amongst people that aren't aware of it like uh when you see a well-designed game half the time you don't know the visual cue of it is actually really great because you can see the information laid out and when you see a game that has complex squares in many different places with too many numbers and way too many symbols you know you're in trouble <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah. It, well, it, it, it's just it, it's a thing i see all the time which is like mm -hmm. f folks will, will say like well i'm not a trained graphic designer i can't do graphic design I'm like well that's fine that's true mm -hmm. but like learning a little bit about the principles of graphic design is, I mean, it's just going to teach you good form. It's like getting into exercising without knowing like the proper, like, you know, form to a jog or the stroke if you're swimming or something. Yeah. Just walk out the door and get started. Yeah. 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 And, and, and that's the, and that's the other thing, right? Like all of this advice is primed on uh, getting the person who wants to design closer to the act of designing. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, talking back on root for just a second, Cole. Um, we've done a lot of like competitive root play and really tried to like optimize playing root as as well as one can. Um, we were curious on your personal opinion. Do you think that root should be played in a tournament setting? What parts of its design was that ever considered as a part of it? I so it was funny. We had a, a long meeting right when Root started taking off. So this was like twenty, uh, the end of twenty eighteen or so. Mm-hmm. So the game had been out for like a couple months, and it was if we should sponsor like a Root tournament, if we should support a competitive scene. We got very into the weeds about what that would mean on the back end, and decided ultimately that like we would let that scene grow up by itself and then try to support it, but we could not initiate it. Uh, now, having watched a lot of root tournaments now and talked to many of the, of the players like off on the Woodland Warriors Discord and in other places, um, I actually I do think root works pretty well as a competitive game. And one reason why we introduced the advanced draft is to provide players with a way of getting their tournament root to look like root. So one of the problems with a lot of tournament drafts is uh, they will tend towards optimums, right? Like you go to the tournament yeah. draft and you're like, okay, Vagabond's on deck, picking him, picking the ranger, picking this map. And so all the maps start looking the same. If any of, if any of y'all have played a lot of magic cards, you know all about this, right? Like Definitely. there is a way yeah. that like the good decks look and it kind of just like, I, I don't know. It makes me sad sometimes because magic is such a cool game, but I kind of hate playing it because all the mm-hmm. decks are sort of the same. Uh, yeah. And, and w- w- one thing I loved about Netrunner, and I really like about the, the new, um, the, the new like fan Netrunner project, is Netrunner encouraged like really creative and like suboptimal decks, just because of the way the deck building goes. This is a Netrunner podcast; we don't need to get into it. But <laughs> when we started thinking about like formalizing the the root draft, one of my priorities was uh, root has all this content, all, and a lot of it is like bizarre and suboptimal and strange and weird like the lizards are not as good as the vagabond it's okay Mm -hmm. Uh, but how do you design a tournament framework that would encourage a player to like potentially play the lizards Mm -hmm. right or another Mm -hmm. faction that is perceived to be uh, underpowered or something Um, and so the advanced draft kind of came from that now there are some some very small balance tweaks i think uh, there there may be a point sometime in the future where we start saying like, okay, you know, you folks on the Woodland Warriors Discord, you want to have a tournament? Here are like three tournament balance errata that you can put in your games and you, you can play like up to that standard. Like, are we going to produce an update kit for people's physical copies? No. Uh, right. What we are going to do is like keep an eye on those tournament results and maybe make very small tweaks so that players who want the really meaty competitive route can get, can get it. So like an, an example uh, of one of those, and I think the last tournament might have even used this, is the Vagabond getting only one point per battle where Infamy is in play as opposed to one per piece. Like, you know, it shaves six points maybe off the Vagabond score at the end of the game. That's enough to put them at faction parity oftentimes. <laughs> and it, it's a real small minor adjustment. Now, on the production side, folding that into every copy of Root that exists right. now is yeah. a complete nightmare. Mm-hmm. And also, folks may be surprised to learn, the Vagabond is not overpowered for the general audience. Yeah. And, we've and, and, tried, to, we've yeah. tried to make that point to people, but it's hard. <laughs> no, 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 because, well, and, 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 yeah, I mean, I think I'll, I'll, it, some, some of that is a matter of perspective. 
Yes. Um, there are just there are a lot of like weird logistical tangles to all this, and I think one of the things that's been really interesting about working on Root is that it is really a living game, not in the sense that we're always tweaking the rules, but in the sense that there's just a really active conversation that has not really stopped. Yeah. since the game came out and it's, it's 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 the most wonderful thing about the game but it's also very weird because i thought we were going to finish the game and then move on and no, <laughs> no we're still yeah. we're still doing it and so free. every every version of the law that comes out there are always very very small tweaks never to, uh, any tweaks to the balance of the game we would of course tell people about but there'll be like a rule that some people have been misinterpreting so we'd like mm-hmm. slightly tweak the wording Mm-hmm. And we just kind of slide it in with with the next version of the law. And when people get their copies of Root Marauder, we actually um, the law in the very first edition of Root was twelve pages long, and then we bumped it up to sixteen pages for Underworld. And I think now it's like twenty four, <laughs> and it, it is twenty four not because we've uh, like it's because we, we covered some edge cases, but also we like loosened the layout, we put in some pictures, and we, we just oh, kind nice. of like. We just made it a little bit more of an approachable document. We put in a it's couple of It's not a phone book anymore. It's not like, yeah, yeah, correct. <laughs> yeah. It's not, yeah, it's not quite <laughs> quite a, a phone book. And, and, and part of that is just, um, that's the work of maintaining a living game. I mean, I, I played a game of Dota last evening. And the very first thing I did when I logged on was read the most recent patch notes because I hadn't played in a month or so. And, oh, okay, this character moves a little faster. This turn radius has been adjusted. Like, that that's the cost of having a game that people really like and, and you know, and doing the hard work of maintaining it mm-hmm. because it's much easier to just say like, okay, Root's done. We're not going to touch it. Right. The, the harder work is saying like, no, we want th- this thing to be like relevant and living and the audience is also wants those things. So we have to find ways to kind of like meet people in the middle. On it's, it. But it's more impressive for root man than it is for Dota because they can make huge swaths of changes with a patch with the, you know, the stroke of a key. Whereas you can't do that and you haven't done that, but the meta still comes in waves, which is still impressive. Like the meta comes in waves despite the lack of changes. Now, granted we're adding new factions and those are huge, wonderful changes, but you're not rehauling the game. These metas are changing on their own as the conversation develops and it lives beyond that yeah i mean i think that that is like the 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 coolest thing about board games from from video games is that in a a a a video game can can change itself very easily after the fact heck a television show can right you can you can remove a cup that wasn't supposed to be in a scene pretty easily (laughs) um but uh and so that you know that's point video games good for them right i mean that's a seriously wonderful tool for a developer to have Mm -hmm. but on the other hand in 20 or 30 years, when some kid stumbles upon a board game in a closet, it's playable. Mm-hmm. And a video game might be bricked. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, if I had found an old board game, assuming all the pieces are there, it still works. I mean, I, I grew mm-hmm. up playing a lot of very, very old board games that were bought at secondhand stores and at garage sales. I mean, my one of my favorite discoveries, I think I was in sixth or seventh grade, I found a copy of HeroQuest at a garage sale for $5. Yeah. And it had two co- it was actually two copies of HeroQuest and a bunch of expansions kind of all mashed together. So it was definitely enough pieces to play through all of the main scenarios. And it was amazing. And at that point, the game was probably 15 years old. Um, and, and, and it, you know, it, it played just as beautifully and goofily as, as if it came out the, the day before. <laughs> That's so wonderful. That's such a, a great thing about tabletop games is they are this, like, physical document with, like, components and things. So, like, you know, when 
future game archaeologists or whatever come across these <laughs> things, they can still figure it out. Cole, I have a question speaking about, you know, other games. Uh, so Jake and Sam are both really well versed in the t- like tabletop game space. You know, they know they teach me like all the games that I know. Uh, but I only know like eight games. So my question for you is, uh, I, I just get really like deep into the the games yeah. that I like. You're a chess head. Yeah, yeah, I like really love chess, but I really love Root, and I hear that Root is based on, uh, you know, some other war games or like has that DNA a little bit. So uh, my question for you is, which obscure war game has Root subconsciously prepared me to play? <laughs> <laughs> well, I would say that so the. the Root has this relationship to this branch of war games called coin games, originally designed by Volko Runka, who uh, is an amazing thinker and designer. And uh, these are games about counterinsurgency, and they're very cool. And the one that I lately, I used to suggest people play Cuba Libre, but actually I think Falling Sky is the better example because Falling Sky is like a little less asymmetric and weird and a little bit more open. So I think you might weirdly be prepped to play Falling Sky. Um, that, that that that's the one I, I would I would suggest. Um, but but it, it's always a funny comparison because there isn't there's almost no mechanical overlap between coin games and root. There's like this spiritual overlap. There's the sense that like you're going to be in a small box punching each other in both of these games. So I, <laughs> that, that I, I haven't I haven't prepared your mind. I've prepared your heart. Um, <laughs> in some ways, that's even more flexible. So I think that's a, that's a good approach. Yeah, I've heard you mention on some other podcasts that uh, you were kind of not as interested in the like specific mechanics as in kind of cultivating that kind of storytelling environment or that like feeling uh, of, you know, being in a war game and like trying to like drag each other down and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in these kind of protracted ways. Um, do you do you feel like Root was was a success in that way? Root has it's been such a blessing. It, it is a success on many different axes, uh, but one of them was Patrick had you know he had he had authored the original concept document for Root, the like idea of a four faction asymmetric game. And the challenge I remember having, and th- this is maybe an element of Root's design that I haven't commented very much on, was uh, we the company had had pretty good success with Vast, but it had reached a kind of high watermark, right? Like we had kind of the people who had liked Vast had liked it. And we didn't, we couldn't find more people like that. And so there was a question of like, can you take kind of what Vast was doing and apply it to a more traditional strategy game? And so, so much of Root's design, like the fact that the players have player boards and all this stuff, I thought of myself as what does it look like to design a strategy game in what I, what I called at that time, like the studio style of leader games. Like if the development of Vast the Crystal Caverns established a studio style, what did it mean to like work in that style, but try to learn some lessons from Vast, which meant introducing like certain, like, you know, lowering the the asymmetry maybe from like an 11 to like a seven Um, that's wild that you say root is a seven on the asymmetric scale yeah 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 i mean these vast is really i mean it's really asymmetric but and you know there were lots of like little things about the design that i thought could be done a little bit differently um and so i actually while working on on the very early stages of root played a lot of vast the crystal caverns but just to think about what parts of this game work really well and what 
what what doesn't work quite as well. Uh, I was just thinking about how you were talking about like reaching a a new audience with with Vast um, and, and trying to grow that audience of those studio games. And I feel like a huge part of that, even though he also worked on Vast, is Kyle Farron's art for Root and for I mean for all of yeah. later games. Kyle Farron, uh, Kyle wrote this question. He said. Uh, our Kyle wrote this question about Kyle Farron. He said, uh, what's it like to work with a genius like Kyle Farron? Well, it's amazing. Every day he yeah. surprises me in different ways. Um, there's so many things that I love um, about working with Kyle. Uh, he is my one of my favorite collaborators. I love how many, um, just how multidimensional his intelligence is. Like he is, he is a, a really interesting kind of like... Um, I don't know. This makes it sound crazy, but like he, he, he's just, he's, he's worn a lot of different hats over his career. And so when he goes into a project, uh, I can see him thinking through a project from the graphic design, from the usability, from the, the communication role. Uh, and, and he also, he has, I think a fundamentally different framework than a lot of other board game artists, many board game artists. Um, I, I feel like they come from, and this is no shade on anyone. They kind of come from the world of video game concept art. And here I think about yeah. like Ryan Lockwood's work or Andrew Bosley, um, who who both do fabulous work. But they really you can you can see them coming from, at least I think, it, it looks like video game concept work. Now, mm-hmm. Kyle is coming from more traditional illustration, and so in some ways Kyle's like better trained to like illustrate a book, uh, and which has mm-hmm. a very very different sensibility. And uh, so I was thinking about this a lot, actually, because I just played, I've been playing a lot of actually the, the new, uh, the republication of Kalos, which is a game, I, I, it's an old Euro game that I, I love. It was my favorite Euro for many, many years. And Andrew Bosley did all the art for the new Kalos. And it's lovely. On a piece-to-piece level, it's lovely. But it looks like a video game. It has this like very painterly, it looks like a paradox game. And so all the buildings are kind of like zoomed three quarters perspective as if you were like dropping them in Age of Empires on the map. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah. I was thinking like, man, if Kyle had done this, they'd be little scenes. That's the main difference that you're talking about, right? Is that with he has like an illustrative style as opposed to the concept art, which is a concept art is like a rendering of a character or like a weapon. Whereas Kyle's, they all tell a story or they all look at the card's name and they render that idea, that scene within their picture. Right. Yep. And, and, and so I think like, you know, a lot of concept art is about like establishment of world and mood. And certainly Kyle's work is doing that too. But Kyle is more interested in narrative coherence than like world building coherence. So it's like, oh, there's like a big snake in here. Don't worry about the big snake. Or like that guy, he seems like a little more blocky. And this guy seems a little bit more like tall and straight. You know, like, are they both humans? And it's like, yeah, they are. I can't remember where this was, but someone, some younger person asked him about drawing hands and like how many fingers (laughs) are you allowed to draw fewer (laughs) fingers? And he was like, I only draw as many fingers as I need to draw, <laughs> um, which I just loved. I mean, this is what I mean, like when I talk about the, the multidimensional brilliance of Kyle, who's also just absolutely charming. Um, and, and then I think the the actual process that we have in place at Leader Games is is interesting because uh, it allows everyone working to collaborate with each other very, very early in the process. And so like long before in the example of oath, long before oath was like a game with rules or pieces. I was talking to Kyle about like how the game could look. 
And so that conversation happens, like basically the art direction for the game is as old and as storied as the actual game design. Um, and, and that means that, you know, when, when something like Oath like grows up, it, you can just see the, all of the work. You can see like the weight of like the aesthetic thought that's been invested in the project by how it like lays out on the, on the table because that stuff doesn't happen overnight because the, the, the traditional way of doing art and board games is you finish the dang game and then you find an artist and a graphic designer yeah. who might collaborate a little bit. Maybe they're the same person. Sometimes they don't. In fact, I mean, I, I was thinking the more, the more traditional way is you find an artist and you're like, we need these five pieces. And then the graphic designer does all the icons and then the graphic designer figures out how to turn the art and to make it look like more art was done. And they just kind of piece it <laughs> together. We played um, in the office. We played a game called Polynesia by Pierre Sylvester, who is a, uh, a Pierre Sylvester, who's amazing designer. Um, one of my favorite designers. He also designed the King is dead, but mm. uh, Polynesia, which is a very brilliant game, literally has like one art piece. <laughs> and and once you realize that it's only one art piece, it's amazing how much mileage they got, they got out of it. Or it's like it's like the map and the cover are the only two art pieces, and everything else is taken from it. Yeah, just the look of Oath is oh. is mind blowing. Oh. I I feel like I already have personal relationships with the characters on the cards. Like it's it's kind of amazing how how much the art has been woven into that game. It's truly, really striking and impressive. And one of the things that I think you and Kyle do so well, Cole, is you, you, the combination of you two. I, I feel like there's not a lot of like flavor text in leader games in general, and in Oath, it's like almost non-existent. It's the art that tells half the story and the players at the table that tell half the story. In theater, we have this like concept called like show, don't tell. And I feel like leader games do that so well, where it's like playing the game is the story and the stories that you make up are like, yeah, this little fox guy. And you feel clever for like, I don't know, in interacting with the game. What draws you to games that have like that kind of emergent conflict and how much of that was pre-planned? I don't know. Well, I don't know what my no, question no, no. is. So, okay. I think like, <laughs> I, I, here's what I think you're asking, Sam. Yes. <laughs> no, uh, well, what I think you're asking is like, how did you arrive at this like minimally, minimal yeah. narrative approach, right? Because mm -hmm. it a little bit bucks the trend. And it, it, I will say that its arrival was mostly just based on observation, right? I, I grew up playing a lot of thematic games, just an absolute ton of TI and a ton of Game of Thrones. I started with, with the second edition of TI, played it to death. One of the things I noticed was that the stories that we would tell, they were, they were in Game of Thrones and they were in TI. And there wasn't a lot of flavor text kind of in either one, especially TI second edition. I think there might've been faction stories on the back of the board. I never read them. And actually, I, and I should say, I've, I really do value a lot of the writing and the world building. I think it's gotten a lot better. But it was just something that when I, when I was noticing what was really animating players, it was, it was the mechanisms. And I had this experience when, when Arkham Horror came out, the fantasy, the first version of the, that Fantasy Flight did. Um, it didn't really hit with my group. And I don't think it hit because it asked us to do a lot of like reading and describing and kind of like wanted to like sh shape the narrative. And I can totally understand why some folks like love that game, but it just so happened yeah. that it didn't hit with the group that I had. And, and so I remember like what, watching those things and thinking about like, okay, where is like, where, where are those stories coming from? And it was like, it was, they were always coming from the mechanisms of the game. So then how do you find a way to like do very like clipped and strong world building for me, at least 
I want to give players like I've started talking about like it as the storytelling syntax. Like I, the game is giving players like a language to talk about a world. And then what I'm looking for in development and testing is what kinds of stories are they constructing with that syntax? And I think that has been the most helpful frame for me because I think it, uh, it emphasizes the degree to which games can tell stories, but also emphasizes how they tell stories. Wow. Love it. I mean, and, and yeah, I mean, that's wild. And the fact that you made a, like, uh, not exactly a legacy game, this Chronicle game without, you know, envelopes that we're picking up, and yet the story is being told over the course of many games is uh, very impressive. Yeah, in, in the group that we have been playing Oath with, uh, we have, like, a channel on, like, a like a chat in Discord where after the game, yeah. uh, someone will, like, write a couple of paragraphs about like what happened and sort of tell the story of the game. Yeah. Uh, that's like, honestly, one of my favorite parts of playing. Oh, <laughs> like the gameplay is really fun and it's awesome to play the political game during the action. But the kind of like after game report mm-hmm. yeah. is so full of its own personal flavor too. Like I just feel like the oath succeeds in happening after the game has been put away. Yeah. Kyle, that like that, that <laughs> very cool. my heart so much because one thing that I used to say, it was a very pretentious thing to say, but I still said it was while I was working on Oath, I was like, the thing I'm thinking about is how people talk about the game when they're not playing it. And so mm-hmm. it felt it was a very weird project and hard project to design because I was the thing I was training my attention to was the conversation after the game was over, which is a horrible, difficult thing to optimize anything for. But but but, but it also <laughs> like, you know, that I, I think I think it kind of worked. And I um, there a, a reviewer. um described in a, in a in a comment in the discussion thread of, of their of their channel's review described oath as like a big box of narrative legos and i was like yes this is precisely <laughs> yeah. right this is exactly what what it is um and it, because and i think there's always this moment in the game this is why actually i think that the game is best when played like a little fast and loose especially until players really internalize the rules because yeah. if you're working fast if you're playing it at, at a reasonable rhythm it allows the storytelling to have rhythm and you can kind of see the, the sentences of your story compose. And when players get a little too strategic and locked in and try to like understand every permutation, uh, it just break. It's like someone telling the story in a very halting manner. And, and so I, I always, one piece of advice I always give to players who are playing oath is like really encourage people to kind of play like a little fast and loose for the first couple games and it, you know even if you have a, a a group that likes uh the really chewy like perfect knowledge strategy games oath has a lot for for that group but the entry fee is you need to be a little silly for a couple games and yeah. just kind of get the lay yeah. of the land i mean it is a game that i definitely think about when i'm not playing it like and i think mm. that's a great goal to have for a game and honestly my favorite games are that way i mean there are also my favorite games that i don't think about but they stand in a different category in some way. Like, I, I don't think about Terraforming Mars when I'm not playing Terraforming Mars. But, like, mm-hmm. I can think about Oath for sure. I definitely do, especially because it, we created what's on the board a little bit. I I, I noticed, uh, I heard you say on one of your uh, development streams, Cole, that, like, the games you design are, like, kind of, like, a response to the last game you designed. Um, so I'm curious, like, what is Root a response to and uh, what parts of Root... Uh, are responded to an oath. So Root was a response to, I think, like three things. On the one hand, it was a response to uh, the history games I designed, which were quite complicated, and I really wanted the challenge of designing for a more general audience. 
And second, it was a response to Vast and the kind of games that Patrick had been thinking through. And third, it was a response to the state of asymmetric strategy or just strategy games, war games for general audiences, games like Blood Rage, uh, and which I thought of as very good games, but also like kind of like missing the target that I wanted to hit. So it wasn't they were bad. It was just they, they, they weren't they weren't firing at the target I wanted to hit. Right. And so Root is, is kind of a weird, soupy response to all those things. And then Oath was a very direct response to Root. Um, and it was a particular response to the places where Root's narrative. So uh, Root's narrative has a very funny shape. Like sometimes the climax of the game is not the end of the game. It's a little bit like yeah. you go into a movie and you're like, wow, that first act was just like wild and roaring. And the second two acts kind of nothing happened, but the game was still interesting and it ended. <laughs> but like all the narrative force was like kind of in the wrong spot. And I actually uh, there was a talk at Shucks, the shut up and sit down um, mm-hmm. con uh, by uh, Westerfield. I can't remember the guy's name. Some he's a YA novelist, I believe. Uh, but he, he wrote this, he had this talk that was like, why victory points suck? And he used the example of uh, a vagabond that like wins the game of root by crafting a boot or something. Uh, and it just feeling like anticlimactic. And I, I, I heard that talk and I was like, I think you're picking on the wrong game, but I also <laughs> think you're kind of right that sometimes root doesn't like have the right narrative punch. And so Oath was entirely built around this, like, no, this game is, like, it will have climaxes. It will have these dramatic reversals. It'll be about pivoting. And there's all of this stuff in, like, baked deeply in in the structure of Oath that is, like, hard to talk about in a review, but it's still definitely there. So, like, one of them is um, the notion that in Oath you can pivot. Like, you can pivot much more than you can in other games. At the same time, there's a lot of inertia behind your actions. And you can build your player position in a way to pivot and foil each other or not. And, you know, one thing about the the die roll that ends the game is that, mm-hmm. you know, that die roll only happens if the exiles allow it to happen. Right. And yeah. from a narrative perspective, it always works. Because if the <laughs> chancellor rolls a six, the exiles hang their heads in shame. Because they knew they knew the risk, and the person who won the game feels good. They they won it on the on the roll. They they made a, they made a strategic risk and they they won it. So it isn't surprising. And in fact, one of my favorite things that happens in Oath is players get really comfortable with it. Is they'll start making bets where they'll say like, "Okay, I could react in this crazy way to stop you from winning on a six, or I could say, you know what, there is a one six chance that you're going to win the game." But there's a five and six chance that I'm going to win. And, 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 and they start playing for the back half of the game instead of being surprised by those turns. And I think the game kind of like really catches fire when people are like, look, I have a turn seven strategy here. <laughs> and, 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 I, and I'm not going because, you know, in, in, in Oath, whenever you sh- pivot, you lose so much inertia. And mm-hmm. so, like, I, I think managing that and knowing when you are when you can afford to lose the inertia and when you must really preserve it is one of the real challenges of of that design um but i think a lot of the things about oath's narrative shape were very direct responses to root and the other thing about oath is uh, a lot of the design was built around a response to pax premier you know one of the things that i i don't like about pax premier i'm really happy with pax premier i have no complaints about the design but the whole pax engine relies on a lot of market churn you need to have a big mm-hmm. deck of 80 cards. You have to burn through basically the whole deck to play the game. 
And so I part of the design prompt for Oath was, can you make a pack style game that only uses 15 or 20 cards, which are drafted? And so everything that Oath does, um, like weirdly, if you think about Oath as a PAX game, it is the PAX game that uses the fewest cards. So it's almost, even though it's a big, complicated game in a giant box, it's also like weirdly a minimal PAX game. Right. Um, and I think that uh, that's one of the things I'm most proud about the design, but it's so nerdy and hard to explain to people what it does. I'm like, ah, it's, this is just for me to have. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, and Oath has like 200 cards in it or whatever, but you're only playing, the deck is like 54, right? Right, and you're, and you're only going to use and half And then of you them. add the visions. And then, yeah, and then you don't even use all the 54. In Root, you'll usually go through the whole right. deck, but yeah, yeah, wild, wild stuff. It does give the world deck this kind of mystic mm-hmm. quality where every time you dip into it, you're like, oh, I'm, I've never seen this card before. Like, <laughs> this could really change the kind of texture of the game. Uh, I feel like that's actually a really exciting kind of iceberg kind of uh, mechanic to explore. But one of my favorite things about the, about the design is um, having a card really hurt you and then encountering it in the next game and being yeah. like, boy, this was this is like a traumatic moment I'm having just seeing you again. And then having to make the judgment <laughs> of like, do I hold on to you? Do I try to use you or do I put you back into circulation and know that you might come back? And like the relationships <laughs> players form with the cards are are lovely, and it's it is absolutely one of my favorite things. Lord of the Board was so upset at the narrow pass for the past like month and a half. <laughs> yeah, poor guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It really got stuck in our uh, in our chronicle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, like it's yeah, no the um or you know uh, I think Tom Brewster in his review talked about like the mm-hmm. uh, blackmail card, or or for me like the um. The one, the one I think about is uh, the the roving uh, terror. Yeah, yeah, we've which had like that I too. love, I love that card. That that's why it's in the base deck because sometimes it will go away for a few games and you'll be like, oh, mm-hmm. it's been dispossessed, it's out, don't need to worry about it. And then it's like, no, it's back. Um, <laughs> it does feel like I don't know. Part of Oath is like building your own cosmic encounter faction where you're like, I've got all these separate tiny game breaking powers that then influence the game. Well, yeah, and that was the hardest part so about that design was making everything work with everything always. And just, and, and all it was, was just constant play testing and constant like card meetings. Like we would have these meetings where we'd get together and we would just go through the entire card list and be like, you know, have you not, if you haven't seen it played recently in your games, that was like that would flag it. Like, is it not getting played because it's too it's too weak or too strong or is there something you know what's going on with that? And you know if 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 cards felt like they were doubles of something else or if they were a little boring. Yeah. And we put so much attention into the, into this game's card list. It is it, it got more attention than any other game I've ever worked on. Just because we had the bandwidth to do it right and we were all stuck at home with quarantine, just thinking about oath cards all day. Um. And, and so whenever we would have card <laughs> meetings, you know, I'd say, like, okay, we, like, went through the card list. Who's got ideas? And we'd kind of, like, have a writer's room where we would just spitball ideas back and forth and, and, and workshop things. And then we put them into the card mix. And because of how we had our testing structured, we could then populate those cards out to the testers, like, the next day. And then next week at the card meeting, we'd be able to, you know, see, see, see which ones were sticking. Cool. Interesting. Speaking of development, Cole, are there... Uh, you've kind of hinted at there might be like one more expansion to root um, maybe. Uh, and then is there ideas for like 
what that could contain or is that too far away are there ideas for new maps new vagabonds anything like that so i think we are uh having just finished marauder we all get to go on root break for like at least six yeah. at least six months just like a solid good old root break uh you know we we maintain a pretty like relaxed root release schedule so like you know i think 2019 is when we did underworld and, and now we're in 2021. We've just finished Marauder. So it could be two years or so before we get to Root. Uh, I, I want to do the next expansion. I told Patrick I wanted to do a faction expansion. Probably like four factions. Just a box with, with three or four factions. Just Whoa. that's it. No maps. No other mechanisms. Maybe a few hirelings. Something like that. Um, Whoa. And maybe it's the capstone or maybe we we sort of see what um what what might you know be out there after that i haven't really like i have some loose designs but i haven't started really thinking seriously about it because i want i just want to wait and see how marauder sits with people and absolutely yeah what parts are working really well and what, what parts aren't um you know doing due diligence for root and just making sure that everything you work on talks to everything else is exhausting and so i mean even when i was talking to our rules editor he was like i just need like a few months to not be in root so that i can yeah. untangle my my head or whatever and I, I felt the same way after we finished oath of course and now I'm, I'm delighted to be playing it again so it always it always you know one of the best things about development and production is actually making and shipping the game takes like four to six months so you get these forced breaks where like you finish the game, you get the files to the right. factory and then it has to go on ice for a while. And so with Root, that's allowing me to work on other projects. I'm working on a, a space game that I am really, really excited by. And it is um, it's sort of like 50 percent Oath, 50 percent Root, it like sits in the middle. And but it's a lot lighter. It's a lot simpler. Um, and, but it's still got some, got some teeth to it. But I, I, and part of it is like, you know, part of the question was, can I do something like oath with like a third of the rule base? And, yeah, and, and, right. and the answer to that question has been no, of course not. <laughs> well, <laughs> not and, yet. And this is always like, you know, oath is a complicated game, but it's only as complicated as it needs to be because, which is a hard thing to explain to people because people are like, well, I mean, you've got, there's some weird rules in oath and I'm like, yes, but there are so many card effects. Like if you want to have a card base that large with meaningfully different card powers, you need to have this like core system that's strong. It's like the same way when people start playing role-playing games and they learn that like, wow, they're actually kind of complicated. They're, they're very simple in in their framework, but there are lots of rules because they need to support, you know, 10 different kinds of dragons or whatever. And so what, what I'm finding is with with this game that I'm working on now is that I, I want to do some oathy things with it, but because the design is simpler, I have to approach the chronicle elements a little bit differently. So it's a little bit more um, structured uh, than oath. Like if oath is like um, a big box of like primary color Legos, this game is a little bit more like a Lego set. Or like one of those like three in one creator sets where it's like there are things that they're they're more predetermined shapes. It's a little bit more pulpy and jagged in its in its narrative. It's been really really fun to work on, but it has a it has just a very different character. Love that. Um, speaking of space, uh, Cole, you've you've mentioned in the past that you're a big fan of Starcraft, mm-hmm. um, and I, I just wanted to get your thoughts on that because that's one of the the games that I really love. Uh, and just the the way that it, it you know causes players to interact and the, the meta kind of evolves in a living sense and uh, similar to root. 
Um, so what what's your preferred race in StarCraft? So I love Zerg. I'm I'm a huge Zerg player. I've been playing Zerg yeah. mm-hmm. for what feels like decades. <laughs> StarCraft's incredible. It is such an amazing game. The m- one of my favorite elements of the design is the asymmetry of the maps. Every mm-hmm. map forces yeah. you to play the game very, very, very differently. You have to know the maps. Every map has like little counters and, and non counters. I my, I love the way uh, the information economy of the game, like <clears throat> how much you, should you scout. The answer is a lot. Uh, but like, how much should you like pay for your scouts? I mean, at that like point of like, mm. boy, I've lost like literally thousands of minerals just really understanding your board position, and it was all worth it. Yeah, incredible. Everyone should play mm-hmm. more StarCraft. It, it is so <laughs> funny to read when you read. Uh, I read a New Yorker piece many years ago about uh, a StarCraft, the StarCraft Pro scene, and how Blizzard basically said this game doesn't really like make us money anymore, but we do it like out of some sense of obligation to the spirit of the game as if they were running like a chess club. And I just love that <laughs> yeah, because that's what it is. It is chess. It's space. It's a chess, free yeah. to download game uh, that is con- continually supported and patched. Yeah. And, and it is know, absolutely for anyone who's really interested in a one V like, especially in the one V one mode, it is the best strategy game that's ever been made. I mean, it's, it's, it's wow. the best. And it, yeah. uh, and it's very demanding and very hard. And whenever, every once in a while I have a friend ask to teach or ask me to teach them and I'll tell them like, you know, I'm happy to do this, but this is going to take like 200 hours <laughs> and I'm not going yeah, to I'm not going to hold your hand every 200 hours. You want to teach it. Yeah. I'm not going to hold your hand for all those 200 hours. Just know that like, I mean, it's sort of like teaching a MOBA. Like when, when we, when we onboard new folks to our Dota team, we usually tell them like, Hey, this is going to take a really long time. And if you just want to like join us for a casual like game of Counter Strike or something a little lighter, like that's fine. But and if you want to learn Dota, we're super happy to have you. But like, this is it's just going to take a long time. Yeah, like dozens and dozens of hours. And so I always I always think it's funny, you know, to, to pulling things to board games. Um, you know, Oath is a hard game to teach, but like you can you can learn it. You can be playing pretty well within about eight hours of play, and that's just like nothing in the scope of video games. I was going to say that that makes total sense, Cole. I feel like your games are repeat play games, right? The first game of Root or Oath, it kind of happens to you. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and it's enjoyable, but it but you can't like, you know, a new player can't be like they're just trying to understand their faction, not the other three, but every time you play it, you're like you understand it more and more. And I feel like that brings value to the games you already own rather than having to go out and buy just some other game to have a new experience. The new experiences are deeper in that same box. Look, the market is being very well served right now if you're the kind of player who just wants to play something once or twice and then move on to the next game. Like, Mm -hmm. there are so many excellent designers out there for you. And I feel like it to the degree to which Leader and myself have a market niche, it is building games that uh, are are for the groups that really want to drill deep into one or two titles because that's I mean that's really how I consume my video games and it's how I, I, I it's how I consume my board games too with the caveat that most of what I play is stuff I'm working on just because that's mm-hmm. just how that's just how it is right, right? and and so it is like I uh, I go to BGGCon when, when I can which is a really cool game convention because it's not premised on selling it's premised on playing so you go to like the main hall at BGGCon and it's all game tables set up. 
and which is just an alarming thing to see because usually it's like <laughs> usually it's like booths and things. Um, but at BGCon, I, I try really hard to play lots and lots of different titles because I know that's like the one time of year I can just kind of like take the temperature of the industry. And because for the most of my year, it's going to be like, well, I play. What did I play this year? Three hundred games of Root. 200 games of oath and a bunch of fort and that's like you know and then also i threw down some race for the galaxy with my wife or something right but like that i think uh i don't even mind it because that's how i like to play games anyway i want to really go deep it, you know one of the one of the things about making something and, and y'all know this having worked in different parts of, of the creative world is you have to uh really live with what you're making for a long time yeah and that like yep. That just that that's very different from a pattern of consumption, right? And so I, uh, you know, I, I'm so happy that at least I feel a little spoiled, right? I get to work on games that ask of our players what we also ask of ourselves, which is just that you have to live with them for a long time. And then I get to be I don't I get to be unapologetic about it, right? Like I love when people come to our booth and they're like, "Hey, would our group like this game?" And I'm like, "I've got two questions." First question is like, know that person A is going to put some pieces on the board and you might flick those pieces off the board. And if that's going to hurt that person's <laughs> feeling like, then this is not a good game for your group. And the second question is like, do you want to play the same game 10 times? And if you can't think of the last game that you played 10 times, like you should go, go to a different company's booth because there are lots of really good games for you. But like I, I 10 playing 10 games of something is, is like not that big of a number. We had, when we were testing uh, Underworld, we hired a bunch of people to come work for us for the week. They worked for a 40-hour week, and we said, look, you're just going to be play testing for balance. And this is a job, and it's very serious, and we're going to put you in a big room with a bunch of other people. And so at the very first, when I, would, like, when I, when I trained these groups, you know, I mean, I would bring them clipboards and say, here are your five games you need to play today. And there'll be a lunch break, but like you need to play. And like socializing is fine, but like you're playing, this is your, 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 this is work, mm -hmm. right? And we, we, we did a, a go around and we said like, I'm like, okay, how much root have you played? And a lot of people were like, I've played once or twice, or I've never played a game. And there was this person who was very nervous being like, I've never played root. Uh, and I'm a little nervous. I don't know why you guys picked me. And, and then we went around and the, there's this guy's dude sitting in the back and he was like, I've played six games of root. And everyone was <laughs> like, oh man six and i said okay by the end of tomorrow everyone here will have played as much as this guy right so like his lead that he's got is not going to matter and by the end of the week you will have played maybe 20 games of root and if, if we need another week of testing you'll be at 40 and so like i and and, and these numbers are shocking to board gamers but anyone who's ever like looked at their profile in apex legends yeah. <laughs> knows that like they've played like what it means yeah. to play a hundred or hearthstone like i want to build something that is worth playing that many times it, it's been so interesting to design without the burden of i have to wow them on the first game mm -hmm. it just completely changes you know i always tell kyle that like his job is wowing them at the first play my, my <laughs> job my job is the second play in the plays that follow that's great. I know that that definitely was my intro. I was like, I want to play the game that looks like that. <laughs> and I will learn whatever rule set it takes to play yeah. that game. It's working. And, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it, yeah. Very good. All right. Uh, are we on the rapid fire? Yeah, questions? I think we are. Let's bring it All out. Right. All right. Here we go. Uh, Cole, uh, we found out that you were in eighth grade band. Okay. Kyle and I have a musical theater company. We're very interested in music. What instrument did you play? Oh, you guys could guess. I, My guess is 
I'm a, I'm a, I want to guess from both of you, but you have to both of you have your have your guesses locked. I'm between two. I'm between trumpet and clarinet. I'm gonna uh, go. My guess is gonna be saxophone. I'm gonna go clarinet. Okay, Jake, you got a guess. Jake, uh, I'll say trumpet. I played trumpet. I got oh, I got right, called out okay. on this in, in the Whirly Gig Discord where someone was like, "You were a trumpet player, weren't you?" And I was like, God damn it. <laughs> "Are we that much alike?" Yes, I played trumpet in eighth grade band, and I really liked it. But when they when they were like, "You have to stay in marching band," I was like, "I can't." I can't. No. I just can't. Yeah, I, march. I like my summers too much, and I, you know, and that was it. <laughs> Good. I'm glad you became a board game designer instead. Yeah. Everyone, everyone yeah, in my family yeah. plays music. We're all we're a bunch of. I, I'm I'm the worst of the group. I can barely play anything, but I do like it. Uh, re- the reconstruction game you're working on. How's that going? Slowly. It's very hard. Okay. It's a like reconstruction. Yeah. It, yes, okay. uh, it, it's hard, and I want to give up. Is 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 how, okay. is how that game goes. I am. I, I've like put it on ice to work on a game about municipal politics, because I want a system that will allow me to test some of the design principles, but not be quite as charged as reconstruction is. So uh-huh. I'm thinking about doing a game about municipal politics and gentrification Ooh. and like highway building. And that, oh, that, okay. that that might be the next that might be the next really gig project. I'm not Ooh, sure I yet. like this. Well, let's let's that kind of leads into the next question, which is like, is there a history podcast we need to be listening to? We're all fans of history on this podcast. Uh, so really the last history it. podcast. I, so uh, I'll give a few recommendations. If you haven't listened to Slate's Slow Burn, I highly mm, oh, recommend yes, so it. Good. It's so wonderful. Oh. And I just uh, the person who runs Slate Burn, uh, Slate Slate Burn Slow Burn is starting a podcast called. Uh, like it's like about a single year and his first season is about the year 1977 and I'm, I'm pumped by it. I do not know what it's called. I'm being a bad recommender. Uh, the last more traditional history podcast I listened to was the, uh, the history of Byzantium. I listened to during the pandemic. It was quite good. And then the history book I'm reading right now, which you didn't ask for, but I'm giving you anyway, is a biography yeah, yeah. of John Maynard Keynes called the price of peace. It's super yeah. good. Yeah. My colleague Becca was just bringing him up in another podcast. Oh, yeah. so great He's crossover. One of the most interesting 20th century folks. More, more, more people should know the other stuff he, he thought about. All right. And then to make you choose between your darlings here, Cole, your favorite root faction and your favorite root card. Uh, my favorite. Ooh. Mm, yeah. My favorite. Oh, this is such a hard question. Oh, I hate it. I hate it so hard. Okay. My favorite Remember, root your faction. Your answer is incredibly important. It, yeah. Well, my favorite root faction is the cats. I love the cats. For a while, Whoa. for a while, it was the lizards. For a long time, the lizards yeah. were my pat answer, but now it's the cats. I love them. I love them too much. Rock and roll. And then um, my favorite root card. Okay. Can I pick two? I shouldn't be able to pick two. That defeats me. No, pick two. Please okay, pick, I'll pick two. two. So uh, I love the Eerie Gray card. It's so yeah. good. And it, it makes you play your faction so differently when you have access to it. Uh, so I love that. I love that card. Um, but my favorite, my other favorite card are the, the, the three... Uh, the, the three bomb cards in the original the deck. Favors? The, the favors? The favors. I, I kept saying the outcast of the bunnies. And I was like, that's oh, not right. No. It's something else. The fair, I love these cards because. All right, Cole. We, this was supposed to be a rapid fire question, but we have to talk to you about this. Okay. Yeah. Be, Why do you love the favors? Okay, I love the, I love the favors because they are highly telegraphed in, in almost yeah. every circumstance. Mm-hmm. You know True. when someone's going for them. And, and yet still, you'll be surprised by them. 
they are so out of keeping with how design is supposed to work. And, and, <laughs> and so many cards in the original root deck are very carefully balanced and kind of conservative in their design approach. And then the favor cards, um, when we were in the development meetings, there were, we had, we had arguments. We had like stand up and shout arguments about if those cards were ruining the game or not. And, and, and the entire exiles and partisans deck is basically built from the perspective of like, no, that's true root. And yeah. so like they, they sit to me, those favor cards sit at the fulcrum of what root is. And the, the one side, you can put all the cards on either side of that balance beam. Uh, because in the one side is root is a very careful strategy game where everything is very hydraulic. And the other side of it is, no, this is cosmic encounter with a spatial. Element. Yeah, there's still a super weapon. Yeah, right? and, and so I, yeah. I really I really like them. I, I do think like, you know, I, I think that weirdly the original deck, if you swapped the partisan cards for the favor cards, those would probably be more in keeping with how the original deck works. Um mm. But I, I, I love the favorite cards because the things that, like, I have seen them win games. I, and, and, and they whenever I see them, they remind me of my very favorite game of Root I've ever played, which we played right after we submitted the files to the factory. We played a celebratory game in the, in the studio on the winner map with, like, four players. And I think two of the three favorite cards got used. The scoundrel was in the game. He burned down, like, an absolutely critical clearing. And the, the game went into like this triple overtime where there was all, no, everybody had like 25 points, but no way to score points because the board was barren. And it was like post-apocalyptic route. And I was like, okay, I love this. And it's so weird. It's so off script. Um, so yeah, I, that's my favorite. I love those cards. I love the favorite cards. Well, I will tell you, I've also had those shouting matches about those cards at our table. <laughs> you know, if you're going to say something, no. say something controversial. <laughs> that's true no well, i think that that that's mind-blowing i'm so happy you said that <laughs> i'm we're also a little surprised about Erie emigre because we just the podcast right before this I, we did a tier ranking i'm looking at your tier ranking right now and oh I no so okay. many <laughs> yeah, let's talk about it no okay. we, we yeah. could do this this is a whole nother oh so first of all some I things say there's a two-hour podcast with context yeah yeah, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. yeah and I, sure. I i haven't i have that cued because i do want to listen to it um, <laughs> soup kitchens. I mean, so many of the soup kitchens is so oh, good. Soup kitchens. It's yeah, so that got some. That got some heat on our Discord okay, good. too. Yes, it's so good. It's so good. Mm -hmm. I um. It's interesting. One thing I've thought about doing, if we ever do a capstone root project, is potentially going into the old deck and just tweaking it like a little bit, because there are a couple Ooh. like very like stand deliver is a cool card that is I think it's incorrectly priced, um, mm -hmm, and and mm -hmm. I think that there's some like kind of obvious things that just. This was the first game I had designed with with um, card powers, and uh -huh. I, I yeah I'd never designed a card because even Paxmere doesn't really have card powers. And then with Kyber Knives, I put in some card powers, uh, but really after I did TMM, there was this realization when we were working on TMM that like oh, with TMM the card powers are wild, and then that that was like the training ground for the Exiles and Partisans deck, which in turn led to like Oath. So there's like a there's like a lineage of like you can see by thinking about card powers change as as we I go through those through those games. Um, I think I you know I, I I largely agree with the tier list. The tier list is hard though because it depends on faction. Wooden Alliance with soup kitchens totally. is like monstrous. Um, <laughs> tunnels if tunnels with the eerie is are so good. 
Um, yeah. Yeah, so the, yeah, they're, crows they're different, too, yeah, yeah. different ways of doing it. Cole, we could do a whole episode where you come on and critique our tier list. So I would be so down for this. Well, if so there's a season two, you guys can have me back on and we'll, we'll, we'll get we'll That get sounds great. I was just going to say thank you so much for joining us. And there will be more Woodland War Machine content and you will absolutely be a part of it in the future. In fact, we also probably got to play a game with you sometime. That, yeah, that, that would be lovely. I, uh, I just want to say it is my honor. I cannot, it is so fun to see folks talk about stuff that you've worked on so much right it's like it's one of the weirdest things about the whole process of publication and you guys all know this from the various different creative endeavors you've done you have something that you develop a really intimate relationship with but it's 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 just you and the thing and then when it's out in the world suddenly the conversation there are all these other voices in the conversation and that is magical it's, it, you know, it's the best high you can get is that move. Even when the conversation is hard, even when, when folks, you know, I always, I tell folks each morning I read, I read all the comments for all the products I've worked on and it is bracing. <laughs> it is like, it is, it's like cold oatmeal sometimes. It's like, oh, oh yeah. this is, this. why am I doing this to well, myself? The gaming community has got opinions and they need to let you they know. Need, they need <laughs> oh, yeah. I've read, mm-hmm. there are some, thankfully, sometimes the really hurtful ones are like so badly structured and confusing that you don't really mind <laughs> because you're just right. confused. But I think it's just this very good way of reminding yourself that like the things that you work on, people talk, care about. And that's like a good reason to like make them better. And so I, I think it's, it's really important to like read and synthesize feedback, even when the feedback is sometimes unfair because it's still, it's still feedback, but thank you so much for having me on your podcast. It was so nice to talk to you all and see your faces and, and, you know, uh, kind of put, put faces to, 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 the, to the words I've been listening to. And I'm excited for all, all the stuff you guys might be cooking up. Awesome. Well, thank Thanks you so much, Cole. So great to talk with you, Cole. Oh, man. <laughs> As we go on, we remember DCMA's last forever. <laughs> oh, guys, it's great to be with you here at the all- end of all things. Uh, it's been an this honor playing not- with you tonight, gentlemen. Um, <laughs> every goodbye is another hello. I don't know. You know, I always thought I'd go out uh, playing a game of Root. <laughs> Is that what you always thought? <laughs> Since 2018. No, I don't know. <laughs> We're specifically recording this section to tell people it's not over, and both of you are waving goodbye like you're on the boat leaving the harbor. All right, this thing is like the return of the king. We're going to have like eight endings to this episode. That's the plan. When you told Cole, Cole that no one bows to him, I was like, we have to stop recording this interview. <laughs> I just loved that moment where Cole was on the bed and we all slow-mo like ran into the room. Man, I hope his finger's going to be okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was crazy when Marcus the cat bit it off. I don't know. Actually, Nev is definitely Gollum. I don't know why I made it Marcus. Um <laughs> This was the last episode of our first season of Woodland War Machine, and I have enjoyed this process so much. Thank you both for doing this with me. Thank you, Jake. I remember it was January or whatever. We were talking about the idea of this show, and you're like, what would you want it to be? Like, if we can only do, like, I think you might have said, like, 14 episodes. (laughs) If we can only do, like, a handful of episodes, you know, like, what would they look like? What would they be? And we kind of, like, matched, you know, we we sketched this idea out. And Mm -hmm. we've just done 
all of the things that we've wanted to. We've never really <laughs> compromised. We're like, what if we could interview Cole Worley? Wouldn't that be cool? And Jake's like, I'm on it. Uh, so you've made this dream come true for me and Kyle, and you've been doing all the editing. And uh, Jake, I can't thank you enough for making uh, this dream of ours come true. And I do mean all of our dreams. I don't. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, it's like I fell asleep and you guys put this dream in my head. I didn't see this one coming. I love it. <laughs> I want to thank Sam for creating the Inception device that we used on Jake yes. to <laughs> accomplish our dream. Um, what is that spinning top over there? Is that that is? <laughs> Just don't let it fall. All right. <laughs> this project uh, has taken on a life of its own. And that to me is my big takeaway from season one. You out there listening right now, thank you for participating, for being along for the ride, because uh, this has been kind of like a wild thing that has just grown and you know gained momentum and stuff. So absolutely, I think our enthusiasm has only been raised by the amount of listeners and wonderful feedback we've gotten from everybody who's participated in this process. Not just the people that Sam thanks every week, but also the people uh, on the ancillary who are uh, just helping build the root world outside of the game itself. Yeah, and and all of the people listening, there's a lot more that are listening than we mention at the end of every episode. And I want to thank everyone uh, for listening. There's a lot of you. And uh, shout out to Denmark. What up, Denmark? I know you're listening. <laughs> yeah, you guys are listening in Denmark. It's awesome. Um, And a little bit in Brazil, too, it turns out. Uh, So there's obviously like more people to thank than we have time to individually name. Uh, But what's what can we expect going forward for uh, for the pod? Jake. Well, (laughs) (laughs) silence Silence as we listen to the producer to see what he can actually do for us. Come on, VR machine, come on. (laughs) (laughs) We're definitely going to do a season two. It'll probably be a few weeks to months down the road as we retool and get some new content to start building up. We'll we'll return here in the fall of 2021. If you're listening in the near future, you're just going to hit next episode. It's not really a big deal. (laughs) Uh, But uh, we're also going to do some video content in the future. Not sure what that looks like yet, but Root gameplay is the stuff we talk about all the time, so we might as well make some of it as well. Um, Both of those things are on our horizon. And I know that in our Discord and in a number of other spaces, people have suggested a number of great ideas for episodes. Those are not being ignored. We definitely have a list of things that we are counting on for season two, uh, some of which you've suggested, some of which you've not. And so you'll be pleasantly surprised. But either way, a lot more Root stuff in the future, I I promise, and I'm excited about it. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of talk, but also a lot of play. And on the talk side, one thing I'm really excited to get into is it feels like this first season was like a nice bedrock. Mm-hmm. of root stuff you know mm-hmm. we went like a one like what is root what are these factions what are the nuts and bolts and i'm excited in season two to get into some of the like the nuances and get into those like weird situations and like um edge cases and kind of like more thematic stuff just to kind of explore that side of root and uh, kind of build on all this cool stuff we've talked about already yeah, I definitely want to be playing a lot of games with the new stuff, even though it's just in the print and play form. I think for this podcast, I've been like kind of like keeping that out of my head as we try to get that bedrock knowledge established. But now I I, I want to know how the Badgers work more. You know, yeah. I want to come up with a couple warlord strategies. I want to see what's up with these hirelings. So I'm 
really excited. I think uh, some of the video content could be about that, like us kind of as a community learning this stuff. And of course, some of it could change, but um, I think it could still be valuable to kind of go on that learning experience together. Yeah. And as we've mentioned before, and as Cole kind of dabbled in into the interview, like the meta that surrounds this game is changing, right? So what we're talking about now might be different in the future, though no rules necessarily have changed, but their attitudes, people's attitudes towards certain factions and gameplay styles may have. I mean, he loved the favorite cards, you guys. Yeah. I mean, if there's another deck, God help us. It's going to be all <laughs> favorite cards. Um, Man, him confronting a when he said that he was <laughs> looking at the tier list as we were talking like i was cold it was just cold sweats like i was like oh no oh no he's gonna be so mad he's like my favorite card is in d tier what's up with that you know <laughs> oh soup kitchens why'd you guys put soup kitchens down oh, oh no it's funny you podcast listeners don't understand but we're on a video call for a lot of this and so i can see the cold sweat break out for both of them when cole mentions that he's looking at the tier list yeah just like that emoji of the scream you know that one that's yeah. that was just my face for a good five minutes there um jake uh any progress on the life-sized um root board and pieces <laughs> Is that, is that if we can get that soon? installed in a park in Portland, I promise you we will be the first one to film a live gameplay. Okay, game. great, great. I'm, I'm glad that there's tons of people we can get dressed up as, as birds and cats in that town. <laughs> so we have no pro we have no shortage of warriors. Oh my That's gosh, right. it'd be so fun too. The lizards are in play. You got to bring like extra yellow shirts for converting people. <laughs> That'd be fun. But they never take off the yellow shirts. That's the problem. <laughs> Cultists for life. Yeah, bring enough for a friend. Whenever the alliance gains sympathy, they just throw a glove into that area. <laughs> <laughs> so season two, bigger and more real. <laughs> also, I imagine um, yeah. we'll probably be doing some kind of oath content too. Yeah, so we've talked about Oath a lot in this interview that we did with Cole, and the three of us have been talking about Oath a fair amount. Now, I want to keep Woodland War Machine as a root-based thing, 100%. but I am not afraid to definitely start opening some, opening that Ruth Chronicle a little bit and seeing what's inside, especially with our game that we've been participating in with the three of us plus Lord of the Board. We've also had a few wonderful guests uh, along with us, including Hunter from Space Cats Peace Turtles, and that's been a blast to play. Yeah, I, I imagine it could be some like uh you know some video content or something but yeah woodland war machine is a home of root and that's what we want to stick to for sure yeah but yeah. i mean oath will probably come up because yeah. it's fun yeah <laughs> and speaking of fun this is this podcast is a product of good time society we are a board game production company that uh we cover role-playing games we cover board games we cover all things fun and nerdy and this podcast wouldn't be here without it so if you want to support this podcast you can go to patreon.com slash good time society and support us there uh if you don't listen to other good time society content go check it out i have a really awesome podcast called to boldly watch where we watch star trek the next generation and have a lot of fun talking about it it is the best um thing to watch Watch if you are interested in uh, the next generation, because those <laughs> those episodes are just so wild, yeah. and it's so much fun to experience it with like the lens of 
to boldly watch. It's simultaneously <laughs> really good and also really a product of the late 80s. So, like, <laughs> there's a real dichotomy to discuss every week. Uh, I'm having a lot of fun doing that. We also make a ton of board game and RPG content, including Call of Cthulhu and every board game that you can think of we're doing how to plays and gameplays for. So come check us out there. We'll also be doing Season 2 of Woodland War Machine and a lot of other interesting stuff in the future. And I want to say thank you to uh, Good Time Society and, and Becca and everybody uh, over there that's doing such great stuff. And thanks for taking a chance on on, on these smelly boys playing one <laughs> stupid board game. That's the nice thing about recording remotely is we can't smell you. So. No, but you'll smell me soon. <laughs> Uh, I also have some uh, people to thank. I tried to get as many names as I could from episodes past, so I want to give a big shout-out to Marcus the Couch, Garrick S., Justin K., Germ Curry, Shouts to Nebuchadnezzar, Fuglis, This Just Ten, Fancy Zeeling, Aquaman Boss, Crewmeister, Prestane, Fantastic Mr. Trickster, Marquise de Jules, Opie's Funeral, Fletch, Nitro Rev, SP Shaman, C. Coyote, Lord of the Board, Bot Bot, Lily G., Cole Worley, and Squidmark. Thank you, guys. Nice. And for anyone I missed, also, super thanks. <laughs> yeah, you guys are all awesome. I was asked before we recorded this what, what I wanted to say um, to all listeners uh, as, as a kind of send-off before we take a short break and return to season two. And for me, what I just want to con- convey to all of you is in this time, this this gift of a few months, you guys better practice, yeah, okay? Yeah, you gotta get ready. <laughs> You got to get some reps in. We're going to be doing some tournaments and you all have to be in fighting shape because these games are going to be awesome. All right. So go get some practice, play some games with us on the discord. That's the Woodland War Machine channel on the Good Time Society discord. Uh, Hit us up. We're, We're playing a lot. A lot of games have started to get organized there, both digital and TTS, and we'll continue to organize games there uh, during our brief hiatus before we come back for season two. That's right. A lot of asynchronous games uh, lately, which I think is really cool. Yeah. Uh, you you have the time to kind of crunch the numbers and like kind of uh, and and the nice thing too is with w- when it's within the Discord, there's usually a little more of an active chat during games. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, yeah, get get in on one of those. They're happening all the time. Yeah, those have been really fun to kind of see people report back on what's going on. And like, you'll just see like a chat come into the Discord that's just like, ah, I think he's got it. Um, <laughs> and there's and like three hours later, someone's like, wait, did, did we lose? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like having a movie spoiled for you. <laughs> yeah, it's it, your own game. Uh, those have been uh, awesome. And, and it's so much better, especially when you're like doing digital games to know everybody so everybody doesn't quit on on you yeah. um, I know there's a lot of people have been like really trying to do those games where we can meet up or you know we can find each other on discord so that way we can avoid people rage quitting which is helpful when playing Absolutely. a board game that requires everyone to be engaged the whole time so come on down to the good time society discord and join a group of friends who are eager to get good and quash you at this game because they're gonna try and get a place in the tournament <laughs> should we talk about the root rpg are we going to do stuff with that oh good call yeah we wanted to do stuff with that this season but things didn't work out timing wise and i did want to like keep season one a little bit to the board game but i mean season two is going to be wide open in the root world and we've been all very excited to talk about rpgs again so it's definitely on the docket and i think we'll definitely have a guest for that as well yeah i'm so i'm super super excited about that i for one really hope that we can bring some of that entertainment to you guys out there and like go in that direction um i have some great ideas for the (laughs) rpg that i'm 
so excited to share with you all. <laughs> maybe you should be DMing this, Kyle. Oh, should I DM the root RPG? Well, I, I mean, like I, it was, I maybe it was a it. debate between me and Sam, but I would love for you to. Yeah, you want to oh, read man. a couple books? <laughs> <laughs> about root? Crack open a few tomes. I, I could write a couple of books about root. <laughs> Hell yeah, I'll read some books about root. All right, well, guys, I think we need to end this podcast how we end every podcast but let's do it with cole Worley. yeah let's cut to cole Worley chanting root and actually jake if you could just like up his volume a little bit so we know how many times he chanted it i got it in there don't you worry okay uh cole we do this thing at the end of the podcast if you if you do it with us we chant the word root over and over again this came because we didn't know how to end the first episode and now we just chant root at the end if you wouldn't mind chanting root okay, with i'm us. happy to okay great thank you <laughs> ready all right ready root 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 root